When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Absock, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. Will we get a sixth book this year? That's the big question, and I'm talking about wins and winter. Fire and blood doesn't count. I have faith. There's no reason right now to have any faith. There's no inside information, no speculation. But I have faith that this will be the year. We'll get to see this story continued on the page where it was created, where it in many ways belongs, even though I do love the show with all my heart. Why do I love the books just as much, sometimes if not more, than the show? Well, it's because not only do we spend more time with the characters that we love and know, see inside their brains, for at least the point of view characters, in their hearts and souls, but it's the wide breadth of characters. There's so many. Sometimes that's confusing. Sometimes you have to keep notes. But a lot of times it's these characters that we don't see on the show that add a lot of flavor and spice to the story stew. So today, let's talk about those characters from the books that didn't make it to the show, won't make it to the show, but yet we still miss. A lot of ideas, a lot of people to choose from. Who do you have? Let's hear some of your thoughts now. Hey, Ken. So my friends and I were sitting around the other day. We have a pretty split group as far as who's read the books and who haven't. And the people who haven't read the books kind of collectively asked the question, uh, who did we think was a character that we adored that was left out of the show from the books? Um, and the first one that popped into my mind was uh, Patchface. I love the Patchface bits in the books. Uh, super bizarre, these little weird uh, riddle-esque hymns that he sings to uh, Shireen or tells Shireen. And then, you know, they kind of bizarrely reference houses or events. And it's very mysterious and, and twisted and captivating. And it's one of the reasons that I always kind of point to. It's an, a very much an example of why I love the books and the air of mystery in them. Uh, we definitely have that in the show, but I feel like the mystery is kind of second to uh, many other things in the show. So my, my pick is Patchface. I would love to know who you think was a glaring omission from the show. Thanks for taking the call. Hey, Ken, so the book character I'm going to pick is Arian Martell. I think she is absolutely kick-ass in the books. Really missed her on the show. I think she definitely would have made the Dorn story better if she was included on the show. Um, you know, the Dorn story is definitely one of my least favorite um, from book-to-show aspects that the show has done. I just don't, you know, don't think they nailed it, and I think she definitely would have helped uh, runner-up, um, Sir Thomas Atoll would have picked my runner-up, which would have been Patchface, but another one, strictly because of Bar- uh, George R. R. Martin has said that this character is the most beautiful character in all the land, uh, Val, the uh, wildling who was Mance Raider's uh, sister-in-law. She didn't make it on the show. as the, you know, None of Mance's family made it on the show that's in the books, but yeah, I would say Val would be my runner-up, but my number one, Aaron Martell. We're off and running with some great answers from Sir Thomas Atoll and Eric Monroe about book characters that didn't quite make it into the show. And I guess I should give light spoiler warnings. 
for uh, anyone who hasn't read the books and wants to or hasn't read the books and fears that, uh, you know, stuff on the show might be discussed that maybe yet hasn't yet happened or just providing more detail. I don't think we're going to get too heavily into spoilers, but it would be responsible of me to say that. Uh, a lot of people haven't read the books. So to the discussion, Patches, Patchface, the fool of Stannis Baratheon. That is a great choice. He's an interesting character. Fools on the show are a little less focused on. We we have Ser Dantos, who's turned into a fool. Um, you hear about fools. It is kind of a, you know, we're all familiar. If you've, if you've studied medieval times in any way, or if you've been to medieval times for a good chicken turkey leg dinner while watching nights, you've probably seen fools. The concept of the fool is, is not new. But they're a little more prominent in the books. And Patchface is an Interesting one, if not an important one, we still might learn how important he is. He says a lot of things that are cryptic, that might mean things, that we might go back, much like, say, some of the stories told in book one, especially Old Nan or some of the dreams and visions. At the time when you're first reading it, you're like, oh, that's cool. We got some uh, kooky visions going on. And then you go back and you're like, oh, there's like... The entire plot. I, I didn't. I didn't catch that the first time around. That's the layering of the writing, of course. So there's some things that Patchface says because he is a he is a he is a a a, uh, a fool. And fools were definitely like, well, they're fool. But we know, like from Sir Tantos, he's a he's a knight. Maybe not an accomplished knight. Sansa saves his, saves his life, and Joffrey turns him into a fool. So he's not a dumb guy. Maybe desperate, maybe naive to believe Baelish, but not a dumb guy. Patchface is is similar. He has a he's described as having a quick wit and having a certain uh, intelligence to him, but uh, he suffered uh, some problems as as a as a kid after had an accident and you know tremors caesar seizures not caesars not caesar seizures and uh so he's kind of viewed as a literal fool but he's not and he uh was a little brought over uh he's tattooed he's from volantis green and red patches a square on his face um that is with the keeping with the volantis uh tradition of of tattooing your slaves and he's brought over to uh entertain and maybe make stannis laugh teach him how to laugh but he doesn't really do it because but he forms a, a connection with shireen there's rumors that maybe he's shireen's father and he says things like this to crescent uh, Maester Crescent and Shireen Bar uh, Baratheon The shadows come to dance, my lord Dance, my lord, dance, my lord The shadows come to stay, my lord Stay, my lord, stay, my lord Could that be something with Melisandre? Could that be something with uh, the smoke baby uh, demons? Uh, you know, stuff like that uh, He says uh, at Castle Black Because he's up there when Stannis goes up there In the dark, the dead are dancing I know, I know, oh, 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 oh Talks to Jon Snow, saying the crow, the crow, under the sea, the crows are white as snow. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Says things like that. And that is why I get maybe he's, I don't know. It's one of those characters that I think I think could fit into the show more easily. I don't know. Maybe it's just another layer you have to explain. Because he was there at the beginning, what would have been ep uh, season two, episode one, when Maester Crescent tries to kill Melisandre. He would have been there. It's just another character, and I get the show has to cut things and you know we don't know what he means yet what his little rhymes mean maybe they mean nothing maybe they're just vague and just for our benefit as uh, as readers so maybe the show is okay cutting him out but it is 
it's an interesting interesting layer to Stannis Baratheon, uh, what's going on there, and to the prophecies of the show. And that is always fun. So I could see it's a good vote for me, Patchface. Maybe he should have. Maybe he could have. Maybe he won't, but would have been on the show. Another great choice, Arian Martell. Let's talk more about her. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the Dornish plan, the Dornish plot. Dorn. In the show, it's not the favorite storyline. It's not the favorite executed storyline of, of everything going on. And, well, that's because in the books, particularly Feast for Crows, it's pretty good. It's pretty intricate. It's pretty intriguing. It's pretty sexy. It is the Dornish plan. All of the sand snakes. Laria Sand. Arian Martell, the daughter of Prince Duran. Now, in the show, the Dornish plot, the Dornish arc started pretty well. Ober Martell is perhaps one of the best things in the show, without a doubt. Alaria Sand as well. And nothing against any uh, anyone who is uh, part of that plot. Great actors uh, all, all around. We got a little bit of the promise of the Sand Snakes. It just didn't work out as much as we wanted. But that's because in the books, there's so much more. There's so much more to it. And a lot of it begins with Arian Martell. As I said, she is the daughter of Prince Duran. She is... She is... Uh, supposed to be one of the more beautiful women in the land, and that's saying something for Dorne. She is sexy. She uh, is uh, working in the shadows against her uh, uh, against her family. She doesn't agree, and she has she's tied in. I don't I don't even really want to go into all the details. She's tied in with a king uh, Kingsguard uh, for who who sat down with Marcella. She's tied in with Marcella. She wants to. Uh, put Marcella on the throne, and it's interesting, and it all goes to hell, and it is, uh, it is, it is, it is pretty damn good. I don't even want to begin to talk about it and spoil it. And when season five was on the way, and we are getting word that uh, we're going to go to Dorne, we're going to see the Sand Snakes. I was excited. By this time, I was all in on the books and knew what was coming, and knew that we we're going to get Arya Martell, who was going to play her, and, and, and it didn't happen. I didn't quite understand how they could pull that off on the show. I mean, this is a pretty important character to the plot. In fact, the plot is pretty important to the story at large, and, and they're not going to do it. It's crazy. And maybe maybe it was okay, but in the end, with the Dornish plot in the show not really going anywhere, not really hitting all the marks, you can't help but think that Aryan Martell, the devious, beautiful, vivacious, downright dangerous Ariane Martel. Wouldn't have been a good fit for HBO's Game of Thrones. But we'll never know. Maybe somehow there could be an area Ariane Martel prequel series? Nah. Fortunately, I don't think it will work. But good answer, Eric. It's not just the character that we miss it's the rest of the plot that that character helped push along Ken I think one of the biggest glaring omissions uh, from the books to TV is young Griff and uh, you know the older Griff John Connington and possibly little uh, little Aegon Targaryen we don't know exactly if it's a uh, because the show's not over yet we don't know if that's going to be a complete omission, but that whole storyline of uh, the Griffin, possibly the false Griffin, the uh, the false dragon, if you will, uh, 
Well, we don't know. We don't know where that's going in terms of the books. Uh, we've gone this far in the show without any mention of it, so maybe it's not important. But it is kind of strange. It really makes me wonder where the show's going to end and how the books are going to go. All right, Mark from Mark Tuck has, has probably my answer, and that is Young Griff and Old Griff. The Griffs. That's right. Featured prominently, heavily, focused on in the fifth book, Dance with Dragons. I was so sure. I just talked in the last segment about Arya and Martell and how I was sure Arya and Martell would be in season five of Game of Thrones. And uh, no, she wasn't. I was sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that as Tyrion following his, you know, little murdering of his father and his sneak, uh, sneaky boat trip over to Essos, I was sure, very, very sure that he was going to meet the characters of young Griff and old Griff. That is because these characters, and I'll again give a little bit of a spoiler warning, warning for anyone who's listening who hasn't read the books and plans to. All right, I'm going to keep going. I have no problem and I have full understanding if you walk away at this point. I was so sure because young Griff and old Griff are so apparently, allegedly, key to the story. Key to the final stages and chapters of, of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. That the fact that they aren't there, and I do believe it's too late. I do believe we will not see a young Griff, old Griff on the show. Fake gone. The false dragon. And his caretaker, John Connington, old Griff, the former hand of the king, a banished knight. I'm so sure we're not seeing him that it, it still kind of puzzles me. Elements of their story have been absorbed by other characters, most, most notably Jorah, the grayscale, contracting grayscale. That's straight up John Connington's storyline. So when Jorah got it right away, and by this point Tyrion had been on his journey already, and he would have met young Griff and old Griff by now. It's also tied into Varys and Illyrio Mopathis. So when uh, Jorah, at this point, contracts Grayscale, I literally went, ah, not just because I love Jorah so much and I was concerned, but that meant old Griff was not going to be there, nor was young Griff. And then this season, season seven, when Euron is uh, sent across to Essos to pick up the Golden Company, bring them back over to the shores of Westeros, I was again reminded, that's right, no... We're not getting the Griffs, because that is their story. And when it was revealed that Jon Snow is named Aegon Targaryen, it made me think, well, that is the final nail in the coffin. For that is who young Griff is. Again, allegedly. And it could be the same. There could be two Aegons. So, yeah, that's my answer. I get it. I get that all these little plots have been absorbed by other characters, main characters, not cast aside. It'll factor in. And it makes me think that the story in the books is still really, really important. 
There's sometimes show changes, deaths of characters, omissions of characters that make you think, uh, maybe what I'm reading in the books isn't as important. It doesn't tie into the end. But Young Griff, Old Griff, the False Dragon? I still don't understand how that is not in the show. So that's my answer. That's Marcus. Mark's answer. What's your answer? Hey, Ken, Kevin Ross. So you got me thinking about that Melisandre statement you made, that she's a fraud, but someone on the show that has real magical ability. I'm actually starting to see Melisandre as the fantasy tropes of a Merlin, a Gandalf, or to a degree, a Willy Wonka, which is someone who knows how to actually use real hardcore magic, but knows it takes a terrible physical price to use it, so they find other substitutes to uh, justify the ends when necessary. So we've seen Melisandre use potions and, and oils and things along those lines, even her necklace to disguise her looks, because it is a it's simply not as taxing as to gaze into the fire and predict the future and maybe do something else that's, you know, like birthing a shadow baby, right? I don't think she's a fraud. I just think she's practical magic. Thanks. You know what? That's one of the best descriptions I think I've heard of Melisandre. And it's uh, another reason why Kevin from Three Cocktail Questions is always a fun contributor to what we do here at Daily Thrones and what we have been doing. I, I like this idea, especially Melisandre as Willy Wonka. Well, it's the first time I've thought about it in those terms, but it, it makes some sense. Merlin and the other tropes and wizards uh, as well, it makes sense. Uh, you could even you know throw Gandalf in there. Sometimes he fights with his staff. Other times he's casting and tossing spells around. Melisandre is a fraud in a lot of ways. She says it. She admits it. She uses some things to make the fire spike. Tricks people into believing that she's got more power than she's showing them at the time. But definitely believe someone who is really about 400 years old or uh, someone who has birthed uh, smoke baby demons and seen and predicted a lot of things. I still think one of the freakier things she's done is uh, just know a lot about Jon Snow that she shouldn't know. Uh, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Those kind of things, those kind of moments. Melisandre has some sort of power, but she chooses when to use it. And sometimes she doesn't believe. So I think you might be right, Kevin. Maybe she realizes this stuff is all too real, and it takes a toll. She's been around long enough to know. The fact that she's around long enough to know shows us and her that the power is real. So I could see her holding back can see her not wanting to use it all the time. And then when she felt she lost it, that's when she really doubted herself leading up to the resurrection of Jon Snow. So, Melisandre is Willy Wonka. Something we've never thought of, but something I can get behind. That's Daily Thrones for the day. If you got a thought, got a character from the books you want to see in the show, got more insight onto Melisandre, you know what to do. Give us a call here in Daily Thrones. We'll see you tomorrow. Daily Thrones is on the air. This is your quick look at the world of ice and fire. I'm Ken Napsok. Hey, don't forget, you can also communicate with me on Twitter at Ken Napsok using the hashtag Daily Thrones or call in here on Anchor. As uh, I gear up for my week, my week has already gotten busy, which is a good thing. So I don't know what I'm going to sit down and watch season seven like I want to. I really want to go back. I haven't had a chance to since season seven ended again I, I watched every episode about three or four times while i'm breaking down uh, my coverage for uh at the time I was hosting thrones talk uh season six hosting watching thrones I, I take my time with it so i've definitely seen each episode several times but you know you need to take some time you need to 
let things settle and then go back. And I wanted, as, as I said earlier, but some of you may have missed it, really look at season seven. And I loved it. I love so many things about it. But sometimes I feel guilty because other people didn't. And these are fans. These are good, solid, knowledgeable Game of Thrones fans. These aren't people just passing through going, yeah, I didn't like it. I mean, there's, you know, there's people who are out there, whether they're, they're listeners here on Daily Thrones or people in my life who go, ah, there's some things I didn't like about season seven. I stop and listen because I want to know. Not that I want to be swayed by them. I'm I'm going to always come down on the side of, of positivity, and, and I enjoyed season seven. But my goal is to go restart it and really look at it and say, well, what did I really have more of a problem with than I care to admit or or didn't feel at the time? And, and the time will give me that perspective. So I'm still looking to do that. You guys are calling in. You guys have been doing that yourself, uh, yourselves as well. And uh, I want to go to those calls and talk about it a little bit. It's like a freeform day here on Daily Thrones. How's it going, Ken? It's been a long time, but I finally kind of caught up on all the Daily Thrones episodes, and I'm really loving the show, man. You're doing great work. And I just wanted to add on to what you were saying about looking back on a season seven of Game of Thrones. I'm like you. When I watched it, I loved it. But looking back, I really have just two main issues. The the speedy pace, the pace really picked up the season, and it kind of just, I liked it, but I also, I really wanted those intimate moments between all the characters. I don't, I didn't want to see, like, Jon Snow on a boat for three days, nothing like that, but I just wanted to see more character moments in the whole season, and I have to admit, even though I liked the Snow Team 7 idea as a fantasy exploration, it's, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I was expecting from Game of Thrones. I feel like there should have been more consequences and it's just ridiculous to me that they lost a dragon and that's what allowed them, what allowed the White Walkers to get through the wall because of this one stupid plan. Good to have Billy back in here in Daily Thrones. Love having our regular callers. Love having our regular callers return. But never, you guys should never feel pressure to call in. Get your things done. Get your points in. And Billy, good to have you back with an excellent point about Season 7 in review. The speedy nature of the show was something we were warned about going into Season 7. It's going to pick up, be faster than any other season of Game of Thrones. The cast said that. Producers said that. We just, you know, I admit to hearing that and thinking, wow, we're going to have a lot of fast-paced action. And we did. But no, they meant the story's going to move, going to jump around. And that is probably one of the biggest critiques of Season 7. Arya and Sansa's storyline, another one that pops to mind. And, of course, uh, what we've been talking about, about going going north of the wall, which Billy, Billy had a problem with, too, in the sense that, hey, good idea, great stuff on screen. Loved a lot of it, but didn't seem to have the consequences other than Viserion. Uh, we lose Thoris, which was uh, kind of an inconsequential character that, at that point. So that was maybe a, a critique. But yeah, the, the the speedy nature, this is what I'm interested in really going back and studying when I finally get a chance later this week and next week to watch season seven again, is I was fine. I'm still fine with, hey, we got to move around, like Billy referenced there. I don't always uh, need three weeks on a boat. Uh, but we were spoiled early on in the show by Bran and Jamie taking their time walking down to King's Landing, spending a little time on the King's Road in season one with Robert and everyone heading back down to King's Landing, uh, an entire episode on the road there. So... I'm okay with being fast, but yeah, those character moments, those little tiny moments, we seem to be shortchanged a little bit on that, and that is one of the things I'm going to be focused on when I rewatch season seven. I think in the episode uh, North of the Wall, uh, I, I think I think that uh, is where it really is highlighted because we actually got to spend time with those characters. 
the japes with each other, the joking, the insults, the conversations, the little moments, it paid off. And it kind of drove home the fact that, oh, man, we didn't get a lot of that. We got big moments. We got epic moments. We didn't get a lot of those little tiny moments, which uh, are kind of the lifeblood to the Game of Thrones adaptation of A Song of Ice and Fire. So good points, Billy, and good to have you back. Hey, Ken. So I just finished rewatching um, episode four of season seven, and I noticed a couple of really, really cool uh, nods to Return of the King um, with the Dothraki. Uh, in Return of the King, King Theoden and the Rohirrim are preceded in the Battle of Gondor, are preceded by hoofbeats, these deafening hoofbeats that get louder and louder, and then they appear over the crest of the hill. Uh, we also get that almost identical chain of events in the loot train sequence, uh, Jamie and Braun are talking all of a sudden, the deafening hoofbeats start very minimal and then pick up to that deafening point. And then we see the Dothraki appear from left to right over the hill in the exact same way that uh, the Rohirrim does. So I just wanted to share that. I thought it was really cool. I'd love to know what you think. Uh, we have the Rohirrim versus the Dothraki again here on Daily Thrones in a way. We had a lot of fun pitting them together in a fictitious fight a while ago. But... Thomas has a great call looking back on Season 7 with a nod to Lord of the Rings with the approaching Dothraki horde in that loot train battle. And yeah, very reminiscent to what we saw with the Rohirrim at the Battle of Gondor and Return of the King. Uh, and also Helm's Deep in a way, similar imagery there. But hey, it's warriors on horses, right? That's a coincidence, right? Well, I'm sure in some ways it is. You're dealing with the same kind of elements. But what is I find fascinating are the parallels to Lord of the Rings, the movies, Peter Jackson's movies, I should say, and the TV show of A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. They, they are kind of similar in many ways. And in fact, is usually a starting point when you're trying to get someone into Game of Thrones usually starts with, oh, do you like Lord of the Rings? Do you do? Ah, oh, you'd probably love Game of Thrones. Now, these days, uh, Game of Thrones is everywhere. Generally, it has, uh, you know, you run into more Game of Thrones fans than you run into people who haven't watched it. You still find them from time to time. Uh, but back back then, 2011, that's how people kind of got me into the show. That's how I kind of got myself into the show. I was like, do I want to watch this? I saw a little preview of it. Wasn't quite sure. High fantasy stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of some of it, not always. Wasn't sure. This weird heavyset guy with glasses and a white beard talking about his book being adapted. I don't know about him. But oh, Sean Bean. Boromir. Swords. Magic stuff. I'm going to give this a go. Seems like it's Lord of the Rings. So to find uh, nods and parallels to some of the elements in Game of Thrones, especially Season 7, is, is fun. It's interesting. For me, it's almost like going back full circle. Hey, Ken. So I just heard your question of which was the biggest tactical mistake uh, in Game of Thrones. And I honestly have to say that the Children of the Forest just creating those White Walkers in the first place is the biggest mistake. Um, I mean, if you're talking just, you know, in this time period or in the time period of Jon Snow and stuff like that, then yeah, I, I agree with you. Jon Snow going north of the Wall it was a huge mistake. But first talking about the series and all of its timelines you know it's definitely the children of the forest they're just uh not in the right headspace new caller alert it's just mindset and he is definitely confirming what we I believe in our hearts knows the answer but the worst tactical mistake in all the game of thrones children of the forest 
Kevin, that continues to be the answer that keeps on giving. Always enjoy new callers here on Daily Thrones. If you have a thought about anything, if you hear an episode even from weeks ago and you want to talk about it, don't hesitate. Call on in. We can jump around. It's a free-form day here on Daily Thrones. What's up, Ken? I may have talked about this before. Maybe I've even asked you, but uh, let's. It, maybe it bears repeating. You also talked about what we expect might be the opening shots of Season 8. Now, I don't know if this is going to be an opening shot, but it's definitely going to be an interesting one to see, uh, and that is if Jamie arrives at Winterfell, what's going to happen? I do not foresee Jamie just strolling up into Winterfell like, oh, hey, I'm here, it's cool, guys, we're, we're all, it's all well and good. No, I think uh, he's probably going to be, you know, taken in, and um, they're not going to trust him. No one's going to trust him, least of all the Northmen. I think maybe perhaps it'll be Brienne that speaks up for him. And if Brienne speaks up for him, maybe Sansa will allow him to speak, you know, for her sake. Maybe. What do you think? Hey, Ken, Kevin Ross. So we're talking about the pet peeves of season seven. And the biggest one that I have is lack of military intelligence on all sides. Let me explain. We give Tyrion a hard time for his lack of advice or poor advice given to uh, Daenerys on what to do and how to go about doing it. But we fail to talk about uh, Kyburn and his lack of intelligence in letting Cersei know that the Dothraki and a dragon have actually landed in Westeros. And if Jaime had known that, maybe they delay or reroute the way the loot train scenario happens because Jaime would keep more of a force together, uh, keep more of the guys together, send the trains ahead, etc., uh, lack of military intelligence on all sides is my biggest pet peeve of Season 7. Thanks. As we close our broadcast day, another point for Kevin with a great call about the military blunders in Season 7 being a bit of a problem. Though I think it's a fun little wrinkle to the story, though some could argue, hey, some of these decisions, some of these debacles and, and blunders are out of character. But I think it was funny. There was a lot of lack of information, misinformation, or worse, holding on to information and not getting information there sooner. I think the loot train battle, uh, loot train battle is a good example of that there. Who knew what? I don't know. We'll never tell. But you have to think, and this might be where people could say, hey, the story jumping around is a problem. If Danny and the Dothraki herd and a dragon are flying across the land, I don't care what the distance is, someone, some little spider somewhere, some little bird reporting to a former spider, I don't know, might have might have had that information. I guess Kyburn's network of spies wasn't as good, trustworthy, or he had the information, just felt keeping it to himself. But it is something that is prevalent in Season 7, and a good point from Kevin there. That's the end of the broadcast day here on Daily Thrones. I'm going to get all the episodes up that I haven't uh, had a chance to get to. Kind of been a busy week for me, but that's good. That's fun. You guys are here. We're here on Daily Thrones. You can call in, and we'll see you tomorrow. It's Valentine's Day. We can talk love in Game of Thrones. Is there love in Game of Thrones?